0: Terribly um, polite exchange with Daniel Dennett. <laughs> I- I'm always inclined to say it's um, the illusion of an explanatory essence is um, very satisfying for covering up the fact that we just don't know an awful lot. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Such That Cast, episode 9, featuring John Dupre. It's starting to become a recurring theme that I start these episodes by apologizing for the delay, so I won't do that this time. I think it's time to accept for myself that, yeah, I can't really hope to put out more than one episode per month. This episode took some extra work because I met up with Dupre in a lounge at the Amsterdam airport, and he arrived just as I was setting up the equipment and only had about an hour to spare, so I didn't have time to properly test the equipment. And of course there was something wrong with the microphone on my side of the table, which is why I had to do quite a bit of extra editing, and why I sound a little remote at times. That didn't stop us from having a very enjoyable conversation though, and I'm very happy about that because I have enormous respect for Dupre's work. As I mentioned in the episode, I still remember how central Dupre's book, The Disorder of Things, was in my undergrad days, consistently being brought up around lunch tables and water coolers, and really a godsend to those of us who were non-reductionists without wanting to be associated with various forms of dualism. We do end up discussing that book towards the end of the show, following a discussion about Dupre's career path, which illustrates a common phenomenon in academia. I've had many guests in the past who have described their strange career paths before entering academia, but Dupre's career highlights how unorthodox one's career path might be also after entering academia. How one's fate is determined by the proverbial ability to jump when the inherently contingent universe says so. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did, so here it is, episode 9, and John Deprey Okay, it's a big. Football problem with you that there are so many topics to get into. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I have this, um, I often do this on this podcast, uh, often the information you find out there is you've been very active in media and so on. So there's a lot of information to find. What I couldn't find any information about was uh, your background before university.
0: Oh, okay. So first of all, where were you born? Um, I was born in the southeast of England in, um, near a town called Tunbridge Wells, Best known in England for um, signatures of letters to the um, right-wing broadsheets, signed "Disgusted in Tunbridge Wells," oh, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. but that's a sort of a rural village. I um,
0: well, it's, I mean, Tunbridge Wells is a small town. In, I mean, it's a medium-sized town in the commuter belt to London, and I was born in a little village outside. Well, I grew up in a little village outside.
1: And did you have any sort of philosophical interest from early on, academic interest?
0: Uh, not really. Um I was I was brought up as as a Catholic and I suppose that often inspires philosophical thought as mm. one's encouraged to believe um, apparently impossible things at a very early age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so maybe reflections on uh, the Trinity or transubstantiation count as uh, philosophical thoughts. Oh, yes, it does. Did you reflect on it? Um, you... I don't know really. I think, I suspect probably, I just um, uh, took myself to believe it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, though I, I, I guess in many analyses of belief I didn't actually believe it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because I kind of take it
1: from your work that you are, you are an atheist. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, and do you remember the particular point where you converted, or did
0: you just... Not really. I think it just drifted away. It seemed um, increasingly irrelevant to me, in, I think, in my early teens. Um, and I thought it was a, just seemed like a ritual that yeah. I couldn't um, attach any kind of, I don't know, ontological significance to, that's what I should <laughs> now say. Uh, what about
1: philosophy, then, like... So when you you started doing philosophy at your bachelor,
0: bachelor Well bachelor? well actually I did um there were philosophy uh there was a philosophy teacher at my school um and this was an optional once a week class uh so I was fortunate to have some exposure um at an early age and and I suppose at the same time I was mostly doing sciences and maths at school but beginning to wonder whether um, so this was quite what I was cut out for so I went to university originally to do physics and philosophy it was kind of a, a beginning of a drift right. <laughs> towards philosophy right. and, then, and then I rapidly discovered that physics was all maths that was a bit harder than than I was really uh, <laughs> either capable or prepared <laughs> to right. engage with yeah,
1: so <laughs> So what? Uh, so when you first got into philosophy, were there any particular philosophers who really inspired you to to keep at it? Um, or teachers?
0: Well, else? well, I suppose. Um, I mean, there's there's a very particular background I had. I went as an undergraduate to St John's uh, College, Oxford, and the tutors there were Peter Hacker and Gordon Baker. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, it's probably not an accident that mm-hmm. um, I was. I have always been um, quite uh, closely involved with uh, Wittgenstein, particularly right, the late yeah. Wittgenstein. I remember that that I, I did a um, philosophy of of mind course, and the reading for our tutorials began um, essay one or tutorial one, the private language argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to <laughs> I think I think the second section was on criteria. Right. <laughs> so um, yeah. I guess to many people this is a uh, particularly as, a, as an idiosyncratic approach to the topic, but it worked for me. And I um, yeah, found yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> I found it actually quite inspiring.
1: Yeah, somehow it seems uh, compatible with your later views on possible science.
0: I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of Wittgenstein. I I try to to not make too much to make Wittgenstein too evident because I don't want <laughs> to become involved in the in the you know rather. Um, heated debates sometimes over what the great man actually said, <laughs> yeah. um, but in terms of of um, you know just, just the general ideas, um I think they informed a great deal of my work probably more than any other mm-hmm. uh philosopher Interesting. i mean I, the the other people who i who I um really grew up with i guess have become rather unfashionable, but um the the um ordinary language philosophers of the period just before me, I mean I'm a huge admirer of JL Austin, for example. I mean, partly because I really admire um, style Mm -hmm. and clarity and just such a there are very few philosophers who are such a delight to read. I mean just page Turner. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well I completely agree. I was a I've been a big fan of John Searle for a long time, but then I discovered Austin after reading Searle and realised that's where where I
0: yeah, yeah. But um so, so the, the, those are kind of um, people. And then, of course, I, you know, um, I suppose going back from there, um, though, um, I'm not sure how much, how much I believe of what he said. Um, David Hume. I mean, just again for for the style and yeah. uh, clarity.
1: Exactly. Cool. I'm gonna get back to some of that later. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, there's a move that I'm very curious about because you did your bachelor and master at Oxford and then you went to Cambridge for your PhD. Oh, no. Uh, and there are sort of these, at least to outsiders, there's all this sort of myths yeah. about the Oxford community and the Cambridge community, I and mean, can you yeah. go from one to the other?
0: Um, well, I suppose there are two things. One is um, that philosophy of science has always been... Um, you know, much much stronger at Cambridge. I mean, almost obviously, there's much more philosophy at Oxford, but the history of philosophy of science uh, department at Cambridge has always been outstanding. Yep. Um, but that's a rationalisation. I think. I think at the time, and this this uh, uh, sounds uh, well, make of it as you will. I suspect that was my idea of a countercultural move at the time, <laughs> which, from outside, probably sounds uh, really bizarre. But I thought I just just wanted to. Make a change. I, I, I say my, my my time at Oxford was was not an entirely smooth progression. My first two years um, um, ended with um, an agreement that we would part ways. Myself and the, um, the college. I went off to oh, <laughs> music college for a few years, and and it took me a while to realize I was absolutely had no no ability to. Play a musical instrument, and and I had a growing realization that I really did love philosophy. So I went back and yeah, finished my degree there. But I guess you know, this 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 made me think perhaps that um, for a while I should I should um, explore other areas.
1: <laughs> Can I ask why you had part away?
0: Well, I mean, I suppose that that. Um, um, I, I, let me just put it that I, I didn't, I hadn't really committed myself very seriously to my studies, okay. and um, <laughs> my college was um, not, not entirely happy with the degree of commitment. Right, I see, and, <laughs> and encouraged me rather strongly to take um, <laughs> some time to think about it. <laughs> right,
1: uh, interesting. Um, so you end up in Cambridge, to do your PhD. Um, what was actually the topic of the PhD?
0: Was it? the, well, uh, it's it's you can probably find it all reading back from my first book many years later. But uh, the title is um, was um, reductionism, natural kinds, and the disunity of science. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> that that goes back to uh, more or less what it was about. I mean, right. so there were you know fragments of of the the work that eventually led to my. Book the mm-hmm. disorder of things. Yeah,
1: we'll get to that soon. Yeah. First of all, well, who was your supervisor? At Cambridge? Well,
0: my supervisor at Cambridge was uh, Nick Jardine, okay. um, and uh, um, who was just a, a very good person to work with there. Um, I, I I should say though that, that I did have I had quite a few supervisors because um, I spent two years of my PhD in the States. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and so so I was there for two years. Um, Probably not progressing terribly fast. I mean, I was um, not quite sure what I was doing or how to do it. But um, but at any rate, progressing sufficiently to get this <laughs> fellowship to go to <laughs> the States where I um, started to pull some of it together.
1: Right. So were you still wondering whether you had an academic career in the future at that
0: point? Uh, I think I was pretty committed by then. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to make it happen, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is not unique among PhD students, or <laughs> quite what I thought or what I wanted to say about what it was, I, or what I was even writing about. I mean, things uh, nowadays. I think people, people, you know, you know, PhD students certainly in the UK get an enormous amount of, um, of, well, I mean, something between um, assistance and nannying, um, mm-hmm. and that's required by universities. In, in when I was doing my PhD, basically you arrived. So, okay, now you've got three years to find something interesting to say, uh, and, of course, you know, there somebody available to talk to you when you um, had something you needed to get feedback to, but um, one was rather on one's own. Right, yeah. um, and um, so that was. I think I don't think that's at all bad necessarily, but uh, but can create a certain sort of angst. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, but that's that part of I the think experience. I, well, that's part of the experience. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think you know, nowadays I suspect you know, one gets above a certain level of angst, probably shipped off to student services to, <laughs> get, to get to get help. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um.
1: Before getting to the more philosophical points to me, when I read this, it sounds like partly a dream and partly a nightmare. Uh, because you went to the US and yep. after 15 years there, uh, you returned to the UK in 96. Yes. Uh, and one of the things, you've done many things, of course, but one of the things you did was to reintroduce philosophy at uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and this notion of reintroducing a philosophy program it sounds, like I said,
0: partly as a yeah. dream thing, well, but also as a <laughs> nightmare thing as well. Well, um, that, that, I think what you read there cuts rather a long story short. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> what the, so roughly what happened, um, uh, people always ask me why, why I left Stanford, um, and, I, and I have many uh, different reconstructions, but basically um, I think um, the best thing is to call it a whim... Uh, <laughs> Well, it was time to do something different. Actually, what happened was that my partner was um, offered uh, the the chair in English at Exeter Mm. in 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 a way that was rather remarkable. uh, There was a visitor from Exeter in the uh, autumn term, and then who said who asked her and said, you know we've got this chair, it would be great if you applied for it. Um, and then sometime in the following term, a letter arrived from the Vice-Chancellor of Exeter saying, please, could you could you turn up for interview in a week and a half's time? <laughs> and okay. uh, we, thought, we, we looked at it and said, that's an interesting thought, rather. and <laughs> nice, I think it's kind of a nice part of the country. But uh, then I sort of looked it up and very rapidly discovered that there was no philosophy department there. <laughs> so she wrote back and said, well, I think this isn't really viable. I'm very honoured by your <laughs> invitation, and and he being very um, skillful operator in these things, just went back and said, um, "Don't worry about it. We'll talk about that. Please come." So we <laughs> we went off to England. I think my wife was actually just about to give birth to our second son at that point. Wow. Uh, so it was <laughs> an interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so we did that, and um, she was interviewed, and again things that. So bizarre from the American perspective. She did the interview. Um, the vice chancellor called a couple of hours later and said, "Well, we've we've offered you the job." Um, same story. Uh, and um, <laughs> and after a, a f- couple of weeks of discussion, uh, he came and offered me a five year research fellowship in the English department. Okay. <laughs> Which was. <laughs> and I have to say, when when I went to my Department chair at Stanford, and said, "I mean, it was, it's a position where you're used to faculty coming along and um, and talking about their fancy job offers and kind of looking expectantly at their <laughs> paychecks." Um, I think this must have been one of the more <laughs> bizarre <laughs> such occasions he'd have, and certainly he didn't um, feel it was necessary to offer me anything very much to deter me from this. <laughs> but that the um, the occasion of just a remarking to him that I decided to accept this job which was rather <laughs> enjoyable in its way. <laughs> um but so was it was was it was, was a rather it was a rather whimsical career choice, I have to say. Uh, but then I, I seemed to things just seemed to seem to be work well, kind out if you don't worry about them too much. I was um after I said I'd accept the job, um a half time chair was advertised at Birkbeck. Yeah. Um which as it turned out was just I think, because somebody else um, had agreed to come half time and they needed to advertise for legal reasons, um, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that. I applied for the job. <laughs> the person who they wanted to appoint um, didn't um, didn't actually work out with them in the end, and oh, so okay. they had the post and um, appointed me and that was a very enjoyable um, post for. Um, a few years right. I mean, it 's a wonderful institution, but beck i don 't know if you 're familiar with it but it 's mainly um, well it's it's, it's ma- the vast majority of students there are um, part time students and all the classes are in the evenings oh, yeah. so um, you know you, you really feel an incredible respect for for some of these students who are often doing full time jobs yeah. getting up at six in the morning to take care of their Kids, take them to school, do a full day's job, and then come and listen to philosophy lectures in the <laughs> evening if you feel some responsibility to try and oh, yeah, <laughs> say something interesting. But that was really good. But I, I, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour commute from Exeter, and that began to tire. Yeah. So um, eventually uh, the sociology department decided that they'd like to start up some part-time... Uh, philosophy degrees, right. and obviously since um, they noticed that I was uh, there, <laughs> um, actually the I, but the the person who um, who I think when I was first offered the job was sort of instrumental in saying I wouldn't be such a bad idea was um, sociologist Barry Barnes, um, who later became a major collaborator of mine, mm-hmm. um, and he was the professor of sociology at the time. So this was I, I mean. These things, so there's no doubt a more complicated story to this. Uh, so, uh, so I did. I did that. I, I taught um, a first intake of part-time students for a year. I then spent one year as head of the sociology department, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and I, and I think at that point um, I, I I kind of gradually dawned. I mean, there was really there wasn't any funding for philosophy. Right. and that the the really the, the, the only options for really building it up were either to attract large numbers of international students to a master's program mm-hmm. which was with one philosopher on the staff and uh, no tradition of doing philosophy was going to be difficult right. or get a big grant and um, again just things seemed to happen for me uh, the opportunity to apply for a big grant came up and mm-hmm. the Established this uh, center this um, that I directed for the next 10 years, yeah. which was a wonderful opportunity. Wow,
1: amazing. <coughs> so you've gone through sociology department. What did you do in the English department, by
0: the way? Well, um, I didn't do an awful lot for them. <laughs> um, I did teach part of a course on Foucault, of course is possibly more popular in English departments than philosophy departments. Oh, yeah. And then I remember. Um, The rather curious task of judging an undergraduate work of art competition. Okay. They submitted paintings or poems or whatever, and and I was (laughs) given the the task of of, um, judging these. But but, uh, to be honest, um, I didn't do an awful lot for them, but I suppose they were, um, I mean, I was there to do. It was a research post, so they probably weren't expecting much. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes. so. From philosophy. To philosophy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it was um, an unusual, unusual appointment.
1: Good. Okay, um, let's try to get a bit more into towards the philosophy too. Um, I actually remember when the disorder of things came out. Um, no, it was actually before I started university. Too. Um,
0: um, Twenty years it, ago now. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I remember, though, that it made a huge splash. And it was sort of the talk of the department, like, have you read the John Dupre book? And know well, like, Whoa. And that was sort of the talk around the lunch tables. Um, I wish somebody told me at the time. <laughs> well, didn't you? I was going to ask you that, by the way. do you have a feel? Because that was the impression I had, that you came with that book, and then overnight you were like a... Philosopher. <laughs> you have um, so, as to, as to be honest
0: i don't think i had that <laughs> feeling i mean i i i guess in the end i was pleased with the book i mean it took a long time to get to it and obviously you know there's always things that uh, you like better than other bits but i thought it you know, came together um but no i think i think the response to it has been i mean from my perspective uh took a great deal of time to um, Make make any impression on me. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I, I would say really it's um, more in the last five years or so that people, um, that, I, that I get the impression that people are actually treat it as something they really ought to read. And it wasn't a great, at
1: least at that time, because there was so much talk about reductionism mm-hmm. and anti reductionism, and, and at least. To my knowledge, back then, there weren't any sort of substantial defenses mm. of anti-reductionism. There were sort of these uh, scattered things here and there, and, and some that were more or less in line with it, but uh, sort of this full-book treatment of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I suppose it was. I mean, it was Nancy Cartwright's um, right, yeah. book ten years earlier, but that wasn't, uh, I suppose, it wasn't so... Focused, I was more focused on on laws and their uh, absence. Now, of course, it's not a very big step once the laws have gone <laughs> to uh, realize the reductionist project as conceived mm-hmm. was in serious trouble. So uh, that was um, uh, very influential.
1: Uh, yeah. But speaking about Nancy Cartwright, yeah, because you're often referred to as the sort of Stanford school yeah. or the Stanford mafia, even. I've seen. Um, yeah. But. Since you had worked on this in your PhD, you clearly had these ideas before you went to Stanford.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's I mean, it's it's one of those things that is really very hard to um, (laughs) give a give a I mean, of course, um, one person who isn't always mentioned in this context is uh, Patrick Soupies, who, of course, was at Stanford for um, a long time before anybody else mentioned in that. And um, and was um, uh, a presence, and um, so so one one supposes there's there may have been some selective process going on that wasn't right. at all obvious that that um, <laughs> I see, I, see, <laughs> I mean, <yeah. laughs> uh, and 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 maybe other people were involved in that, and I guess you know when I mean, so I suppose the first person I don't, I don't even remember was was Ian Hacking who was appointed of the people who are more commonly associated with that label yeah. and um and then then nancy and myself um as, so so i mean I, there must be some selective explanations right. um <laughs> to some degree i mean the sympathy um i suppose i mean there, there was definitely a shared i mean everybody there um thought it was interesting to to look at some details of some sciences but that wasn't that unusual then (laughs) by any means Um, so it's hard to know and it's sort of emerged um, almost uh, retrospectively that people see I guess a lot of connections between the work of the people who happen to be there and um, uh, it's really hard to (laughs) <laughs> but but I have to I'm certainly that I'm very happy to be associated with all the people <laughs> mentioned <there. laughs> I mean, not only because of, I have enormous respect for their work, but but I think I have enormous sympathy uh, for their work. I think it's, yeah. and, and of course, Nancy's and Ian's, I certainly influence my own.
1: I just speaking off that sort of, um, that group of people, those who hold that view. Um, so in The Disorder of Things, you argue for the sort of non reductive um, indeterministic, um, generally sort of pluralistic view of science. Uh, and I saw this other interview you did, uh, and there, um, so you mentioned that the anti-reductionist view might be the most common or popular one now, but when you started out, it was not the most common view. Uh, then it was more of a leaning towards yeah. um, reductionist views, which kind of sounds a bit paradoxical to some degree, because it seems like the... Uh, the they sort of hold on to the progress of science as being on their side, that as science progresses, we'll, we'll be better and better able to uh, reduce these different levels. But you seem to say that as science has progressed, whatever that means, we can discuss that later. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, Are you saying that now the scientific evidence is just piling up uh, against reductionism?
0: That, that, that's, that's a rather interesting question. Um, but, yes, I mean, I suppose... So, so the last 10 years I've been... Um, involved with with molecular biology, molecular genetics, genomics um, i I doubt whether any area of science has progressed <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> yeah. um, more rapidly in the history of science oh, yeah. uh, and and yet I think that that um, while while there's a strand of that work that um, is clearly um, reductionist, in the sense that people and a lot of the scientists think of themselves as reductionists, looking for the bits and pieces. Uh, yet it seems that the more we find out about how the bits and pieces uh, fit together, the more we also find out about how the context in which uh, in which they're embedded yeah. determines. I, I'm, I'm even tempted to say what they are, uh, certainly what they do. Um, I, I mean, just just a sort of illustration that I rather like of of this. Um, I, I was very delighted when I just found the term "moonlighting protein," uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> reflecting, I suppose, the thought that uh, you know, in 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 one conception of the reductionist um, story that goes from genetics to through course, you know, a lot of other intermediate stage to proteins that have the functions that make systems work. Mm -hmm. You know, one would like to imagine that when one found what the protein did, then one got to a really decisive point in the story. Just as at the beginning of the story, I mean, very early in the history of genetics, people imagined that genes had some function in relation to the phenotype. You know, this was the gene for this and the gene for that. But just as nowadays nobody really thinks that bits of DNA... Um, are, you know can be kind of localized and related to bits of the phenotype. Nowadays we find proteins doing all kinds of different things. and obviously, when people first started finding that, they were slightly outraged. thought of things doing taking time off at the weekends and doing something <laughs> else it's supposed to be. And uh, actually, just a few days ago, I was reading an article on pseudoenzymes, which okay. <laughs> are things that look like enzymes and a proteins very similar to enzymes, but aren 't catalyzing. So they're actually another kind of um, protein that's sort of um, kind of made some slight changes, become uh, and started doing something else. And I think I think that that this is um, so. So in a way, the, the the importance of context has become apparent as as rapidly as knowledge in biology of the functions of parts. Right. Yeah. So that's why I think I, I want to say that the, the history of the science has actually, um, the development of the science has actually undermined the reductionist overall philosophy while obviously making clear the importance of the reductionist strand in understanding what's happening, right. seeing that that's not sufficient to right. understand. You have to have a more holistic view of the system also. But that also, of
1: course, <coughs> makes it more messy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you you said at one point that uh, the picture you're trying to sketch will not please those who are wedded to the crystalline clarity that a mechanistic vision of life offers. So, is this clarity sort of part of the reason for the pull of reductionism? That sort of we just want to swing occam's racer around.
0: As yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's um, I, I, that's a, that's a, a kind of psychological hypothesis that I find attractive, but <laughs> uh, but I really don't have evidence for it. But I mean, I think I think it's fairly clear that that you know some. Major philosophers have have thought that the world ought to be, um, you know, in some way have have a have a story to it that um, hung together more than I guess I think that any true story does.
1: Yeah. And it's sort of uh, I haven't seen this explicitly, but I would imagine that some of them sort of see themselves as being this part of this tradition of Plato and Aristotle of mm. categorizing, and systematizing, and finding essences. And so yeah,
0: like. all of that stuff. I mean, that's still obviously. Attracts people yeah, and, um, and, and I certainly I think you know it did certainly I mean it's attracted um, some physicists I'm not quite sure about uh, scientists who deal with the messier worlds of <laughs> living things and let alone humans but um.
1: no, exactly, um, which is another thing I wanted to ask you about too actually so when you interact with scientists, mm-hmm. so what is the general idea you get of there? Um, their appreciation for philosophy of science?
0: I think the problem that with, with answering that question is that the scientists who are interested in interacting with philosophers are not a representative sample. They're highly self-selected. Yeah. So I talked to um, quite a number of scientists who are... Very interesting in talking to philosophers, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, but, but again that's, um i don 't talk to the ones that aren 't yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, I fear that 's the majority, and, and perhaps for good reasons I mean um, some of which I suppose can be found in a, in a sort of slightly cynical interpretation of kuhn 's idea of normal science yeah. that there's a lot of science goes on that doesn 't call for huge hugely deep reflection about what you're doing mm-hmm. and that's often the most productive <laughs> yes. but but I also think that some of the um, advances in biology that have happened recently have encouraged quite a lot of biologists to to reflect mm-hmm. more abstractly about what what's happening and where the field is going right. so for example I think in in, in the, when, when the um, uh, recent move, and of course, all these moves partly, you know, kind of um, where the where the grant money is going. But but I think uh, a very interesting one recently was to systems biology, which became very much the thing that was being promoted. Uh, with mixed reactions from yeah. scientists but but I think it did reflect um, actually a, a a realization that there was another direction from the reduction reductive um, analysis that needed to be thought about and um, theorized
1: right when it comes to that by the way, um, reductionism often also tends to come with sort of a critical attitude towards folk psychology and and folk physics and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, there's no necessary connection there, of course, but but given your criticism of reductionism, how do you see folk psychology and folk physics and and well,
0: um, I mean it, it, the interesting thing there, I guess for me is is that my that's actually where the whole project began. Okay. I mean the first um, paper I ever published was, um, was a paper in Philosophical Review. Called natural kinds and biological taxa. That's an impressive touch, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, which became the first chapter of the disorder of things, uh, and um, and this is actually in a way a defence of um, of folk biology, right. because I guess that the, the 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 starting point for that was um, people were very excited about uh, Hilary Putnam's notion of um, essences to uh, connecting via science to uh, terms in ordinary language for natural kinds mm-hmm. and and I just looked at this in uh terms in you know folk biology and and my argument was this just isn't true right. i mean there's to say that folk biology involves lots of categories that um that you don't find uh, that aren 't reflected in the way science uh, divides the world, and so this was really where my thought that there was no unique way of dividing the world right. began was with was with 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 a um, a kind of i suppose an intuition that one should take seriously um, other practices, so not just everyday life but I mean so there were people you know I thought of you know gardeners or foresters or um, you know um, people. Dealing with the natural world from from with other particular projects uh came up with other ways of dividing it up mm-hmm. and uh and and then i this l- led me into think looking at the more technical species problem where actually you find then that in um, within biology, there's no agreement about how what the principles of of taxonomy should be. So, so I suppose my whole um, philosophical history begins with taking folk biology, at any rate, seriously. Oh, right. And and I guess it was rather, I suppose, inevitable that I, I, I come to think that folk psychology um, uh, had more going for it than <laughs> um, a certain. Uh, perspective that a very, I guess, a very popular perspective from the point of view of a reductive science that was going to somehow eliminate it. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's a little, um, there's a couple of pages on, um, on the, the the kind of eliminative materialist project in the Disorder of Things, yeah, where right. I am um, not sympathetic to the project. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes.
1: <laughs> but that's that's of course raises this topic where you have been criticised a bit that that when you have this pluralist view and you open up for different interpretations and so on, uh, you have sometimes been charged with this ridiculous claim that then you're also opening up for creationism and intelligent design and all those kinds of things. Um, and I've also seen you being quite critical of trying to find precise manners to divide and distinguish science and yeah. pseudoscience and so on. But, uh, so with that background, like how do we uh, sort of exclude Uh, different types
0: of pseudosciences yeah um well this this of course was was the um the 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 question that um i've i thought most pressing after i'd written the disorder of things Mm -hmm. which is why i spent i suppose about the next 10 years working mostly on sciences that i i had a strong conviction were ultimately pseudosciences right so the work on evolutionary psychology and a little bit of of work on certain parts of economics, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so so yeah, that that was. I mean, in in the disorder, I mean, I proposed that uh, that we should have, I suppose, a, a thick view, uh, kind mm-hmm. of, um, but 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 grounded on the idea that there was a there there were a range of kind of epistemic virtues that one could attribute to a, a project of um, explaining or describing the world and that, you know, I, I guess one way of of um, deciding what those were would be to look at one's most successful scientific projects and see how they worked and the sorts of um, characteristics that appeared to make them successful. Mm-hmm. But I certainly, I, I, I would still stick to the idea that there's no, you know, um, there's no simple criterion that's going to tell you that one thing is you know, perfect science and the other is absolute rubbish right. uh, <laughs> I think it's not that I don't think there's some absolute rubbish and some paradigmatically excellent science but, <laughs> but uh, there's a spectrum in between yeah, exactly. yeah.
1: <laughs> when you say spectrum and you think about the extremes you might think about things like, like intelligent design and homeopathy maybe, and those kinds of things uh, evolutionary psychology has never really struck me as being towards the end of that extreme um, but I do agree with some of your arguments of course um, and it is, like you've pointed out many times, there's something that is so refreshing about an evolutionary psychology story that just makes sense yes, that's yeah. the way it has yeah. to be yeah. um, but do you see that it has any potentially constructive role or can it be reconstructed in a manner that makes it more
0: I think I think it's got to be if it's going to be reconstructed, it's got to be re- reconstructed with a much more sophisticated conception of evolution. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because the uh, though um, the, the 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 enthusiasts for evolutionary psychology will splutter and <laughs> deny this when I say it, but I think it it is ultimately committed to some very strong kind of genetic causation that. Reaches up to um, you know in some quite unproblematic way to behavioral phenotypes, right. and I think for example i, I, I that you know the work in developmental systems theory um, is a very good antidote to a lot of this mm-hmm. that um, human and 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 I, once you you take on board of some of the points that are central to that and some of the you know complexities to our understanding of evolution. Uh, many of the basic planks of evolutionary psychology just don 't make sense yeah. in particular i 'm I'm, I'm, um, very keen nowadays to um, argue against what I call the atavism you know the the notion of us being essentially adapted to life uh, a million years ago, yeah. uh, whereas I think human evolution is all about. Um, a much more rapid change, not much connected with genetic change, mm-hmm. uh, connected with all kinds of ways in which we construct environments that produce um, a different sort of development, um, and um, that we're probably as well adapted to our current s- um, way of living as any organism is adapted to exactly. its current. Which, of course, is you know, it's always tricky. Most things die young (laughs) uh, we we do it less than most things Uh, we may not be very happy all the time but we're certainly doing a lot better than any other large mammal on the planet by a very long way <laughs> so, um, so I think that we've got to have a, a much more sophisticated view of evolution, where I think human evolution becomes really quite difficult to distinguish from history, mm-hmm. in a, in all its messy, gory complexity. Precisely. Yeah. What we've evolved, I think, you know, in in is is an enormous uh, variability, uh, flexibility, and um, it's not to say that you know our biology has nothing to do with it. And, at all, our biology is, um, you know, was always there, is always involved. Yeah. There are genes involved in everything we do, <laughs> but there's other things involved too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Some of your views are—I'm not sure if you would agree—but at least sort of compatible with Stephen Jay Gould and Elbridge and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and Stephen Jay Gould has, of course, been also completely undeservedly ridiculed and labeled uh, as having a communist agenda and all kinds yeah. of weird stuff. Yeah. Uh, have you been subjected to similar
0: kinds of? Um, um, I had a, a not terribly um, polite exchange with Daniel Dennett, oh, right. <laughs> where um, where 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 he described me as some something like a feministist, uh, by contrast to a scientistist, or something. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember the details, but uh, um, but I guess the politics. Now I, I haven't really been attacked for. I, maybe I haven't. Um, apart from having engaged a little bit um, in uh, feminist uh, thinking, I haven't uh, probably been terribly outspoken about my politics. i right. them, kept them, <laughs> <That> <laughs> kept them to myself.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I didn't have much time to look into before coming here. Uh, <clears throat> but I did notice that you've written some stuff on feminist issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I sort of married to the other stuff you've done, I, I assume it's a... So
0: criticism of those kinds of harsh conversations, of, of, uh, yeah. Of, of well, I mean, gender essentialism. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that's that's really where where I mean, and, and, and of course, I mean the um, not feminist um, theorists have not generally been very enthusiastic about um, evolutionary psychology. Yeah, <laughs> basically, um, most evolutionary psychologists pretty firmly committed to saying some fairly essentialist things about uh, gender difference (laughs) Um, which i think are just mistaken so actually i'm 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 pleased to say i'm actually going off to cambridge next autumn to be a visiting professor of gender studies which will be an interesting um, Interesting. uh, return to to that area of my work
1: right what's your main thing well I
0: mean uh, this is actually is, is one of those those wonderful things where you just get to um, hang out and not basically just interact with um, a center there mm-hmm. um, but I mean and, and then there's you know one the idea will be to to you know kind of update the the biological um, reflections on on how how we should now mm-hmm. Think about um, sexual difference and gender difference. Perhaps it would be a start to remind people to just, that the two aren't the same. Which is uh, like the, the the frequency with which I hear two people talking about, you know, the gender of flies and things. Yeah, so oh, yeah. it's, it's really slightly discouraging. <laughs> True.
1: Yeah, there's something that fascinates me enormously about this whole. Um, sort of genophilia or, or mm-hmm. europhilia mm-hmm. thing, that these sort of inherently reductionist explanations seem to have such a strong hold on the public imagination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had this, my nephew, his dog bedded mm-hmm. and they had to put the dog to sleep. Yeah. And the official explanation on the wet was that the dog has a DNA fault. That's why we had to put the dog to sleep. <laughs> so that kind of discourse has become so common yes, now that people yes. are talking about, yeah, it wasn't programmed the right way or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, why does it have such a strong hold on our imagination?
0: A, that's a very, very good question. I mean, it is—it's certainly the, um, I mean, DNA has just, just almost become a, a all-purpose metaphor for an imagined essence. And, I mean, you mm. hear about the DNA of a football club or um, yeah. yeah. I I'm always inclined to say it's um the illusion of an explanatory essence is um very satisfying for covering up the fact that we just don't know an awful lot. Right, yeah. Um and that's um I mean I mean of course this, this is you know back to to the old the sort of virtus dormitiva. right I mean it's it's, it's, it's the, the the dog's dna is no more explanatory than the, <laughs> <laughs> than the you might say the virtues um can't work out the, the, the Latin for <laughs> biting <laughs> in that context. But um no, I, I mean it is um but but it but it certainly is very interesting that uh, DNA has has taken up this this role. Mm-hmm. Um and and rather I think unfortunate <laughs> because obviously yeah. it does it does kind of prepare the ground for all the silliness that comes out in, in um, reporting of you know, genes for everything under the sun, yeah. uh, which I mean, really make absolutely no sense. I mean, I, I say absolutely no sense. I mean, you know, there, the, the I mean, there are genes for everything, of course. I mean, everything about us. There are genes that are relevant to it. Mm-hmm. It's just that that's you know something um, that's enormously uninformative.
1: Yeah. What about the more sort of more scientific practices in terms of gene diagnostics and then? And so sort of the prospects
0: of designer babies that people are scared of Well, themselves. I don't think we, we know enough to do much baby designing yet. <laughs> uh, of course, I mean, one of the things is, is um, I mean, with genetic medicine, um, it's, I think sometimes people, partly because of all this, this um, kind of really confused talk, um, lose track of, the, of, of where there really is a space for genetic medicine. I mean, there are, um, you, you can have you can have something seriously wrong with your genome. I <laughs> mean, um, and genetic diseases normally, um, you know, monogenic diseases um, are of course very serious problems for people. That well, an important part of medical research. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, 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 I think it's a really quite different, you know, part area of reality from. Um, the current work on on you know sort of genes for heart disease or so on right. where where we haven 't much of a clue what the the total kind of set of of relevant variations is and the range of the effects of relevant variations, and we start screening people and you know i 've um, uh, sent off i 've had my uh, my spit analyzed by one of these companies and you know I I can say I've got a 17% chance higher chance of getting you know liver cancer or something I do not remember this is is really totally meaningless Mm -hmm. nonsense where obviously there are one or two things in there which are perfectly sensible I mean and, and they can you know they can make good guesses about some simple phenotypic properties like, mm-hmm. you know. But
1: that, was that, as a patient, was that made clear to you? Or was it that you know this as a background?
0: There's, there's a reason. That, I mean, I think this, there is quite a lot of um, explanation there. The way that the information is presented takes quite a bit of expertise to interpret. Yeah. I doubt whether most of their consumers really... Um, have a very sophisticated understanding of what it means. Uh, they certainly, you know, they they try quite hard to provide interpretation of it, but this is very difficult <laughs> to explain. And of course, I mean, uh, since I think a lot of the of the um, information um, that is to say, you know, kind of just just statistical abstractions from from lots of of um, you know genetic data and just pure brute correlations of, of this data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying to explain why that doesn't mean much is, is certainly a, a very difficult philosophical enterprise that I don't think you'll find in, in what is sent to <laughs> your <No>. average customer. <laughs>
1: <Exactly>. <laughs> it seems that if we abolish the reductionist um, sort of perspective, Seems like science becomes so difficult then, because then mm-hmm. all these different disciplines need to start cooperating. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how do you get biology cooperating with sociology, with psychology, and all these different?
0: Well, I, yeah, that's that's very hard. Maybe even more <laughs> philosophers. If you can solve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and, and of course, as as I alluded to earlier, I mean a lot of the work that's that's done within a sort of Kuhnian normal science framework um is generating useful information but um but but yes it's and and of course you know as as the last example shows generally within these kind of big reductionist ideas uh there is some you know good reductionist nuggets so right. the problem there with with the case we're just talking about is i mean finding the genetic basis of real genetic diseases where there is a seriously dysfunctional Gene um, is is very good science. You sort of dilute the um, the impact of that when you when you sort of, sort of imagine all diseases genetic. I mean, of course, there's a sense in which all diseases genetic, just as all diseases environmental and all diseases. You know, I mean, but but uh, so there's the, there's plenty of room still for the reductionist science. But as but of course, yes, the problem of um, of fostering the the kind of interdisciplinary connections um, is a huge one and um, well I say so I think I, I think maybe philosophers have something to contribute there in um, trying to understand how that should be done. I mean I think this this is where um, you know, the kind of the, the next sort of stage in in pluralism got to go I mean uh, for example um, Sandra Mitchell's written um a couple of, of books on on um you know integrative pluralism which mm-hmm. i am totally support as, as um you know I, some people interpret my earlier work as saying you know all these things have nothing to do with one another mm-hmm. but of course i mean i certainly don't want to say that i want to say they're not part of the same project so there is exactly a crucial problem of how you get them to make the right connections at the boundaries, yep. and that's probably where the most interesting work is going to is going to happen. Where is your powerful leading now? What are your next plans Well, um, as of May, I begin um, a five-year um, European Research Council grant to study um, a process ontology for biology, which right. is um, a rather... Um, Alarming and exciting project for me. It's Um, it's one of the. It's it's, um, come to me at least as a a very strong um, hunch that um, making sense of 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 what I what I perceive in in this developing biology really requires us to think very hard about this very ancient question of process versus substance, mm-hmm. and and I guess my my conviction is that biology is really all about process, right. yes. um, and this I mean one one area in the general philosophy of science that this takes me to is is I've got some dialogue with uh, people in the new mechanist movement, right. um, and uh, I'm not sure whether it's Friendly or hostile, Um, Mm -hmm. actually. Well, my my scepticism about mechanism is that there's, um, is that either there is nothing beyond, I mean, there's nothing that wouldn't be a mechanism that explains anything. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if that isn't the case, then I'm a little concerned that mechanism is committed to ultimately a substance ontology, things um at the bottom there are things doing things and um and i think there are processes a hierarchy of processes and what we call things are stabilized features of processes Mm -hmm. relative to the time scale of what we're trying to explain um but i'm i'm some so i I want to really look at look at this i have um, you know some some Interesting challenges like engaging with Whitehead, uh, which <laughs> is that, uh, that will be part of this project. Right. Uh, though interestingly, since I started talking about it, I find there, the world is very full of closet Whitehead enthusiasts. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> who, I, who, maybe some of them aren't closet, but but <laughs> I mention this, and they say, oh, well, you must be reading Whitehead. And I say, well, I'm sort of trying to read Whitehead. And <laughs> say, Whitehead is... Wonderful. Um, so, uh, but nobody, nobody has yet said, and he's easy. No, <laughs> that, I think that might be the reason. In fact,
1: somebody said that to me as well, In, indirectly pointing out, "I have read white. Yes. Well, this
0: is this is true, and I, and I guess I've I've always had this general view of philosophy that there's the divide, a huge divide between. Philosophers who get to be famous by being so obscure that people want to spend their lives trying to figure out what yes. they say, and the slightly, in some ways, harder task of being so clear that people can see what they want to say. And, mm-hmm. and I tend to think that's a much tougher path to pursue in some ways, and a much more admirable one. Right, yes, so yeah, I've yeah. always... <laughs> uh, the people I admire... Well, of course, uh, some, people, some people put Wittgenstein in the first camp course yeah. uh, so <laughs> yeah. maybe we all have our our kind of esoteric side that wants to claim some insight into somebody so obscure that um, <laughs> most people don't uh, <laughs> uh but so yes this, this is uh, but but i think um uh, this is at least at least an exciting project but i don't know uh quite where it'll go it's, it's something i mean it's been, oh
1: excellent
0: uh, thank you enjoyable talk <laughs> <laughs>
1: There it is, John Dupre and his very inspiring ideas about the inherently complex nature of science and his story about the inherently complex nature of academia. Okay, so what next? Well, some of you may have noticed, to my embarrassment, that all the guests so far have been male. This is of course not intentional and something I've been wanting to rectify for a long time. Well, hopefully that will change in the next episode, as I will shortly talk to one of the most impressive and influential women in contemporary philosophy – Someone who is perhaps most well-known to those of you interested in environmental ethics. If all goes well, that episode will be up in, yeah, in a month's time. Until then, I would as always appreciate any help you can lend in spreading the word about this podcast. Share it through social media, tell your friends and colleagues, or give me a thumbs up in iTunes or other podcast providers. But most importantly, stay tuned and come back next time for episode 10. And listen in on my conversation with what will hopefully be the first female guest on Such That Cast.